A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been sponsored by Arsameach, who's pr- who is proud to announce a new series on the Arsameach Podcast Network, The History of the Balchuva Movement, as told by Rabbi Nota Schiller, founder and Rosh Yeshiva of Arsameach. The Arsameach Podcast Network also currently hosts the Rabbi Breidowitz Q&A, Jewish Philosophy with Rabbi Dr. David Gottlieb, Beyond the Letter of the Law with Harry Rothenberg, and the Rabbi Sinclair Podcast. Join the journey at podcasts.ohr.edu. For more information, you can email us at podcasts at ohr.edu. I will post these links uh, in the description so that you can um, get to the um, uh, these podcasts and the history of the Balchuva movement by Rabbi Schiller. And um, I'm going to get into, uh, related to that, into the origins of the Kirov movement, the Balteshuva movement, a little bit in this uh, in this episode. And it will be hopefully a part of an ongoing series as well. Um, there'll be more analysis of the trivia, the For the Record uh, trivia Purim quiz at the end of this episode, so stay tuned for that. It's ongoing, the last several episodes, and we still have a lot of fun questions to go. Um, but going, getting back to this um, this episode, this is going to be an ongoing series about the Kirov movement, about the Balteshuva movement, and sponsorships are available for future episodes in uh, in that when we're going to explore some of the origins and background in this episode, we're going to get into more specifics of different personalities and organizations in uh, future installments. And it is a very curious phenomenon, and uh, in very often, in many contexts, it's examined uh, with a specific agenda, with a specific uh, uh, policy. In here, I'm going to try to talk about it without any agenda, without any ideology, or any Torah also. And it's exclusively as a historical phenomenon, as something that took place in history, and therefore it's part of Jewish history, and uh, it's worth examining. It's definitely an interesting and fascinating story. Um, And we're going to try to uh, see uh, what part of, what what different facets and angles we can see here. And there's always the question of the origins. Where does it come from? So many in the, uh, who are involved in the field will tell you, well, it starts from the very beginning of the Jewish people. Avram Avinu and Sarah Imenu, they 
are perhaps the first Kirov pioneers because they went out and and did Kirov. Um, but of course, I'm going to examine it from a more modern perspective. You know, you also have in the 19th century, or Bisrol Salanter, the founder of the Musser movement. So he, uh, to a certain extent, he also engaged in Kirov. He he uh, left Eastern Europe and he went first. Uh, he went he traveled a lot. He went to to Memel, which is uh, Klaipedia today, and then it was part of Germany, and then he was in Königsberg, which is where he passed away eventually, he spent time in Berlin, he even went and spent time in Paris, all the way in Western Europe, and he definitely engaged less affiliated Jews, so there was, uh, he he perhaps is uh, also a Kirov pioneer, um, and there are others like that also, so I'm going to speak uh, about the origins of the modern Kirov movement uh, it's interesting. I was just at a bris the other day, and um, one of the speeches was usually they're not very interesting, and I try not to listen to them. But uh, this happened to have been t- relating a story, so it sounded interesting. And he was uh, the the fellow who was giving the speech. He related a story about how his great grandfather, who I guess the baby was named after or something, um, was was. Um, it was, it was one of those immigrants who had arrived during the great immigration to the United States, and and he struggled, struggled during the times, during the uh, 1920s and 30s, to try to keep Shabbos, to try to maintain a Jewish home, and it wasn't easy. There was a lot of external pressures, and the reality of the Great Depression, and of losing your job, and don't show up on Monday if you don't show up on Saturday, and all that. And he was, he was ready to give up. And in 1940... Maybe it was the visit. I don't remember if it was the visit of the Rayats, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe in 1929, if it was his visit, uh, or if it was when he came and he uh, moved there in 1940. It wasn't clear from the from the story either way. And uh, but but what happened was is that there was a great um, welcoming at the pier at the at the docks in New York where the Rebbe's boat docked. And there's hundreds of people who gathered to greet him, and this fellow uh, um, was there as well. And uh, when the, the the boat arrived, so either the Rebbe himself or someone on the boat, again, it wasn't clear from, from the story, and also I was probably in the middle of eating lasagna, and, and I didn't notice all the details. Um, the, someone started singing a Hasidic Nigan. And it got very animated, and the Rebbe was there, and 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 getting everyone going, and and people locked arms, and and all of a sudden there's hundreds of people singing on the New York City uh, docks uh, where this uh, Rebbe, where the, where the Rebbe's boat is 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 coming in, and this this fellow he started crying, and he said to the people near him, he said, "Now we're going to start, we're going to be able to keep Shabbos. Now there's hope." The, the sense of pride in Yiddishkeit, the sense of uh, hope for a better future, that there's strong leadership, that you can be proud to be a Jew at this point, he was instilled within that uh, when the Lubavitcher Rebbe arrived. And there's something to say um, about, in general, about Lubavitch, and again about the next Rebbe, the last uh, Rebbe of, of Chabad, um, in the their all-encompassing involve, involvement and inspiration, and not just inspiration, action also in the Kirov movement. Um, but the, the Rebbe has 
probably the decisive role, and his efforts were so vast and all-encompassing that it kind of permeated every area of the Jewish world and the Kirov movement, the Jewish outreach, and it, therefore I think it deserves its own episode, and hopefully in the near future, and if you want to sponsor that, you be very welcome to do so as well. And in this episode, I'm going to focus on more of a overview, a general uh, aspect, and and uh, not and not uh, specifically on Chabad or the Rebbe. Um, and, uh, you know, the different institutions, the different people, and I, I mentioned in the beginning of, of, about, about, um, uh, Reb Schiller and Arsameach, uh, you know, and they, and, and he himself is giving an episode, a series on the Kirov movement, and he himself was one of those founders, one of those pioneers. And Arsameach, as an institution, was one of the founders and one of the pioneers. And there's so many aspects uh, to it that it's worth examining uh, in depth. Um, and that's why it's going to take, uh, you know, not just, it's not going to be a one and done. This is something that uh, is a really interesting historical phenomenon that we're going to have to get more into. So if we go to the pre-war, the trend in Europe, Western and Eastern Europe, in pre-war, was going in completely the other direction. If you would have told someone at the time that in half a century from now there's going to be a Kirov movement, there's going to be a movement of Jewish outreach, and there's going to be this movement towards returning to Jewish observance and tradition, they would have thought you're crazy, because the trend in that time was in the opposite direction. It was all leaving the faith and distancing from Jewish tradition and observance. And no one imagined that at the time there would be uh, one day a Kirov movement. Even then, there are examples of pre-war Kirov. And it's worth pointing out because in a certain way it foreshadowed what would happen in the generation after. Uh, you had people like the Piyatets Nareba. Reb Klayman is Kamal Shapir, who was a man who wore all hats. He was an educator, he was a Hasidic Rebbe, he was a leader during the Holocaust in the Warsaw Ghetto. But he also, and before, I mean, obviously the term wasn't coined then, but he was involved in Kirov. He wanted to reach out to the youth of the generation who were distanced uh, from Yiddishkeit, from Jewish observance. And he tried to reach out to them, and he tried to adapt to the modern times. There were individual Balei Tshuva who became quite prominent in the Jewish world in pre-war Europe. There was famously Dr. Nathan Birnbaum, who had been prominent in the Zionist movement, he had been a prominent, prominent Yiddishist, uh, autonomous Jewish culture, and all kinds of different uh, uh, answers to the Jewish questions and answers to Jewish identity in modern times before he decided to become a and become one of the leaders of Agudas Yisrael. And one of the one of the prominent figures in uh, in the the um, neo Hasidic movement of pre-war Poland was Hillel Zeitlin, Hillel Zeitlin, who was a Baltashuva. He returned to Jewish observance um, in his later years. He's killed by the Nazis during the war, and he is he is uh, and he writes and he he's a famous figure and a thinker and a critic of contemporary Jewish society in a certain way. So again, that's another uh, figure who, at that time, when it didn't seem like it was likely that there would be a Kirov movement, but there were uh, those signs. You know, essentially, if you want to go that far, essentially Beis Yaakov in its early stages was a form of Kirov. Essentially, it, it, it sounds funny to say today, but that's that's really what it was. Um, 
uh, in in those early years. And that, if for that, you could refer to my series on uh, girls' education. There's one or two uh, that uh, discuss Beis Yaakov. Um, if we go to the United States, again, we're still in pre-war. The Tzirei Agudis Yisrael, which formed the nucleus of Agudis Yisrael in America, was a Kiev movement, as was Camp Aguda, by the way. You wouldn't, you wouldn't guess it by seeing Camp Aguda today. But Mike Tress, when he started, he was the head of Tzirei Aguda, the young Agudis Yisrael, and he founded Camp Aguda. It was to do Kirov. It was to encourage Jewish children to keep Shabbos and not eat uh, non-kosher food. That's, that's what it was. And to a lesser extent, Young Israel uh, was, uh, when it was, again, this is all pre-war, uh, was founded, it was for a cure of purpose. To a lesser extent, because it was targeting people who were uh, s- still somewhat affiliated. Um, but going back to Agudis Yisrael, that's, till today, why the American Agudis Yisrael is so different than what the Agudis Yisrael was in Poland or in Israel. Because Agudis Yisrael in Europe, especially in Poland, was politics, was po- a political party. And in Israel, that's what it was also. It was a continuation of what it was in Poland. In the United States, it was it was Mike Tress's Kirov movement. And it was a Kirov organization. So it's a fundamentally different purpose. It was promoting Jewish values and Yiddishkeit. It wasn't a political party uh, with a you know, clear political agenda. Um, so if we jump ahead to the post-war, we get to, uh, again, before it becomes a movement, I'm going to explain what I mean uh, by movement, by the way. It's something that needs to be clarified. But in the 1950s, when there's the death of orthodoxy outside of New York City, every, almost every, or maybe every orthodox rabbi, to a certain extent even non-orthodox rabbis, which I'll get to also, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, conser- rabbis in the conservative movement, 1950s and 60s, for sure fall into this category. Uh, these rabbis were out in the field, alone, on their own, in the 1950s, in the 1960s, in the 1970s. They're the unsung heroes of Kirov, because it's before Kirov became a word, became a thing, became in vogue, before it was a movement, before there were institutions, before there was infrastructure, and most importantly, before there was funding. And, uh, you know, I've lectured on Jewish history at organizations that are devoted to training Kirov professionals. So that's what you have today when it's become so institutionalized, which is great. It's wonderful. Or whatever. It's, whatever it is. I'm not, I'm just describing the history. And, and, uh, it, it was unheard of then. It was sporadic. It was individual initiative. And it only later becomes institutionalized and funded. And there's this key historical factor. When is it called Kirov? When is it defined as a movement? What is a movement? What, 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 these are good questions. You have to. Have, there's a key distinction in its development is when it becomes a movement, and 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 when does it have institutions? Because there are these all these rabbis, like I said, out there in the 1950s who have these shuls, who are struggling to keep a mechitza, who are struggling to outreach, to encourage families to attend the synagogue, and to have them affiliated with, with Judaism. And and, and many of their names have been forgotten to history. And they are de- definitely people who are involved in Kirov. And there's many, many like that. But it slowly evolves into a movement. There's, in, there's NCSY, National Council of Synagogue Youth of the OU, of Pinchas Stolper, who's Literally, a, one of the earliest pioneers of, of Kirov, because that's that becomes a, a, a an organization, an official organization for outreach. 
There's JEP, Jewish Education Program, which is also one of those early on uh, organizations. And then there's all these external events. And, and that, because that provides the context, I want to devote several minutes to understanding. And again, this is versus the United States. I'll get to Israel soon, hopefully. There's the baby boom generation that are born in the post-war, mainly to parents who were veterans in the, in the World War II, to second and third generation um, um, Jews from the immigrant generation. So you have these second, third generations. They broke out of the ghetto. They, they, their parent, their grandparents immigrated and lived in the Lower East Side and worked in the textile industry and struggled to make a living. Their their kids and grandkids made it. Uh, first, they made it to, to school. They went to college. They they got into the professions. They integrated into American society. They've become Americanized. They've many of them have served in the in the military in the in the in the in the in the, in the service during World War II. They're patriotic, and they make it to the suburbs after the war. They move to the suburbs. They're moving to Miami and L.A. They're moving outside the city, and there's this Judaism of the suburbs, which is which is an affiliation. It's an affiliation with a synagogue and with a center and a, and a JCC. And a, I don't know if there was a JCC then or whatever, whatever it was. Could be that only started later. I'm not sure. And, um, and there's this perception in their kids and the baby boom generation of, uh, there's certain seeds of rebellion against what they perceive as a certain superficiality or stale uh, form of Jewish identity. And that fits into the general uh, feeling of the youth in the United States, not limited exclusively to Jews at all, of the counterculture movement, which is brewing in the 1960s, the Vietnam War, and the draft, which is seen as an unjust draft to send to a pointless war uh, uh, um, and sacrificing all this life. There's the civil rights movement, which questions a lot of American values. There's this Age of modernity. There's, you know, there's Camelot. There's, there's the the Kennedy administration, and and there's the new music. There's, there's, there's the the Beatles and rock and roll, and there's Woodstock, the Woodstock generation, which is at the end of the sixties, nineteen sixty nine in the summer. There's the anti-war protests during the end of the Johnson administration and the beginning of the Nixon administration, and there's the hippie movement. And the changing social mores, there's changing ethical codes, censorship is changing in, in, in the media, in, in art, there's fashion trends that are changing, there's the Cold War, which gives a certain tension and certain context to the youth, the beatnik generation, the San Francisco hippie communes, Berkeley, the free speech movement, um, the use of drugs and, 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 and acid and things like that. There's the interest, the renewed interest in Eastern religions of the Far East. Now, all that is going on and all that is important because it gives context to the lost generation, to youth searching for meaning and searching for values. And then into that picture comes the pioneers in the United States. We'll get to Israel soon of the Kirov movement. And that, for, again, you know, again, Shlomo Kalbach. Uh, he comes right into that. He goes out to San Francisco. The same time, another Shlomo, Rabbi Shlomo Freifeld, uh, it's, he's, he's right in there, right? Because of the Vietnam War draft and because of the, the, the hippie movement and he, because of people looking and searching, he's able to get, uh, uh Shar Yashiv off the ground. There's rabbis like Reb Nachman Bowman, who's one of those pioneers. And this is at the time that the Lubavitcher Rebbe, 
is is making the sh- the shluchim uh, the, a big thing and sending them out and understanding the need, understanding the youth of that time, and that's again, like I said, a whole story. But it's not only. There's a few other rabbis actually who are pioneers in Kirov. The Boston Rebbe, Rebbe Levi Yitzchakarovitz, who begins in the 1950s, before even before all this starts, he pioneers campus Kirov, which today is like a catchphrase. He's the one who starts it in Boston with all the big universities, Brandeis and Harvard and everything else. There's their Boston University and, and, and many others, uh, LaSalle. And, 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 uh, and he picks up in the 1960s and 70s. We need definitely an episode just on the Boston Rebbe and his fascinating life and a person who's able to, a person like that who's able to go down into the trenches and, and reach out to, to do the college Kirov at the time. So with such authenticity and his warmth, the hardest stipler rebbes, several of them in Denver and Milwaukee and other places, several generations of them. You have not just rebbes; you have rebbetzins, rebbetzin Esther Youngreis, the Hineni organization, uh, which she starts early on, and she becomes a Kirov pioneer later on. And I mentioned already NCSY and Rapinchas Stolper, but later on you have Reb Aryeh Kaplan, who becomes starts off as a rabbi out there in the field, but eventually be, becomes involved with NCSY to a certain extent, and he's, and he's uh, doing stuff on his own as well. All these people are, are, are just, there's so much about them and, and such a story that these are all topics that have to be developed. So in the United States, it begins in the 1960s. By the way, it's not just Orthodox organizations. There's outreach of the conservative uh, Judaism uh, movement. There's the United Synagogue Youth and the Camp Rama uh, uh, camps and the Solomon Schechter schools. These are all forms of outreach. It may be outreach towards conservative Judaism. And by the way, Reform Judaism is doing similar, similar has similar institutions uh, and as part of their organization. But it's outreach to unaffiliated or less affiliated Jews, whether whether you agree with the tactics and, and their style of Judaism is another issue entirely, but it's a historical phenomenon that exists. And it's widespread in every denomination. And there's a certain role of summer camps. In Orthodox, I mentioned Camp Aguda, and, 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 and there's other summer camps. And summer camps becomes a, a mechanism uh, um, you know, um, to, to use it for Kirov, because uh, I mentioned Jep. Uh, and and uh, and their aff- affiliation with you know in, uh, uh, with summer programs. Also, uh, the idea is that many kids who are unaffiliated throughout the year because they come from less affiliated homes, and they go and attend public school. And you can't encourage them to attend some sort of day school, but you can encourage them to send a summer camp. And then there's scholarships for those summer camps. The so summer camps play a decisive role in the Kiev movement. Now. Before that's just an overview, and I'm, of course, hope to develop it more. But I want to move to Israel and uh, see what's going on in the scene there. The external events in Israel start a bit later. There's the euphoria of the Six Day War, which is very often seen as the catalyst for the rise of the Kirov movement, but it's not really so. It's a bit of a misconception. It's more actually the crisis which took place after the Yom Kippur War. Several years later, why is that so? Because after the Six Day War, it was the. It seemed to be that what was vindicated was the the heroism of the Israeli military, the 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 the, the decisive strike, uh, preemptive strike, and the winning all that new territory. It seemed to be the the messian the messianism the messianic era was was a secular messianism. This is this is it. The state of Israel has done it. 
and um, the 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 IDF was 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 heroes, and it was more after the crisis of after the Yom Kippur War that all of a sudden, almost a near Holocaust was averted, and and the Israeli leadership was a disaster, even though the Agronaut Commission tried to whitewash it, which is a to- topic for another time, and 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 now there's this like uncertainty and there's this searching and it's actually much more after the M. Kippur War than by after the Six-Day War, even though the seeds were planted after the Six-Day War and I'll get to that also. It's also important to understand the background of the social fabric in Israel um, at the time. I want to say something about Israeli history in general. We tend, especially outside of Israel, we tend to view it as either a political history. We, we tend to view Israeli history, the state of Israel history, in political terms or in military terms. In recent years, there has been an important nuanced view, a trend to see it, especially in Israel, hopefully outside of Israel as well, to examine more in social terms. And the social context over here is the second generation after the Ma'barot, after those temporary dwellings where many of the Aliyah of the 1950s that came from Islamic countries and those Jewish communities who were disillusioned with uh, with their treatment by the uh, government of the state of Israel and by the society, not just the government, by the society of the of of, the, of Israel of Israelis, and the kids who grow up in the 1950s and 60s, and there's discrimination, there's poverty, there's racism, there's neglect, and what rises in Israel? One of the things that rises in the early 70s, 1971, is the Black Panther movement which is named for what was what was in the United States, the Black Panthers. But here, it was a much less violent, um, but the but uh, 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 Jewish youth from from uh, Sephardic communities, from who, whose parents had immigrated from the Islamic uh, countries in the 1950s, they rose up and demanded equality, demanded demanded to be heard. And the kibbutz movement is at its zenith at the time. So you have this, this, and 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 there's a lot of ethnic background, and 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 uh, you know there's a certain class hierarchy in Israeli society. There's the establishment, and there's the army, and the politicians who are in charge. And there's a lot going on. There's a lot to say about that, about that context as well. There's no Vietnam War in Israel at this point. They don't have that. That came later, by the way. The Lebanon War. That's the 1980s. And that's another story And that, that we have to get to also. That was Israel's quagmire. And in a social, if we're talking about social history, that war, the Lebanon War, probably impacts Israeli society today much more than the Six-Day War or the Yom Kippur War. And yet, it's much less talked about. But... Again, we'll save that for another time. There was not either a counterculture movement so much in, in, in Israel at the time. In fact, Golda Meir, the Prime Minister, prevented the Beatles from performing in Israel. That's how conservative Israeli society was in the 1960s. I remember about 20 years ago, Paul McCartney performed in Tel Aviv, and the media presented it as a way to atone for the fact that the State of Israel did not allow the Beatles to come in the 60s. But <laughs> there are other factors in Israeli society that I mentioned that provided that context. Now, Kirov in Israel uh, existed way before that, way, way before that. Uh, Rav Ram Yitzchak uh, Hakayin Cook and Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zanefeld together went on a special historic uh, event. They did a visit, a Masaha Moshavot. They visited the settlements in 1913, 
And this was to give a rabbinical presence and to, you know, show them that they're there, which was a very secular environment at the time, very unaffiliated with Judaism environment at the time. And this was a, a uh, to, to go around and to, to, you know, to provide a certain sense of, of leadership and connection. There were similar ones with other rabbis in 1923, 1927. So that's an interesting, like, a Kirov pioneering uh, act. But it was, it, even before the Yom Kippur War, there were other stuff going on. Before the 1970s, 1950s, for instance, there was Pe'ilim. Pe'ilim um, were, were, was an amazing organization. It was to go to these Ma'barot that I mentioned and do Kirov. That was the real beginning of Kirov. There was a fellow by the name of Rav Shalom Ber Lifshitz, who was a Lubavitcher Chassid, a Chabad Chassid, who studied in Panevish Yeshiva. He had a nice combination there. And he was the founder of Pe'ilim, and Pe'ilim had in its ranks uh, students of Panevish. They had... And uh, there was, even outside of Pe'ilim, doing the similar things as Pe'ilim, there were, there were different uh, members of Hasidic groups. I know that there was from Tzans and from other ones that were going around to these Mabarod and trying to rescue or save or, or provide a certain uh, cure of environment to try to bring them to yeshivas and to uh, um, uh, schools and to give them a little bit of a Jewish education. Um, and uh, many of them are uh, unsung heroes. You know, Rav Shalom Lifshitz himself is not so well known today. Uh, 19, late 1980s, uh, Lev Laachim split off from Pe'ilim, so it became two different organizations, but that's already contemporary history. There's the role of Bnei Akiva that it served in the early years, which was a youth movement which gave, which, of the, of the, you know, loosely affiliated with uh, Mizrahi, and they, they were definitely engaging in what was, it was, I don't know if it was called that, but it was definitely Kirov. It was providing a religious framework for many of the youth who didn't have any other one, who didn't go to a, Jew, uh, a religious school during the day. And this was the only, um, you know, religious uh, uh, context and education that they could receive was within B'nai Akiva. And there's probably thousands of religious Jews today in Israel who, uh, maybe in America also, who grew up in B'nai Akiva, and that provided their uh, uh, first uh, uh, context, uh, religious context. Who are some of the pioneers of the Kirov movement, though, in the post-Six-Day War, post-Yom Kippur War era? So I mentioned in the United States there were two Shlomos, right? There was Rabbi Shlomo Freifeld and Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach. So here in Israel there was also, we had our own Shlomo, Rabbi Shlomo Volbe. He's a mashgiach in Ber Yaakov, and what does he do? He already starts after the Six-Day War. He even wrote a book based on his lectures called Bein Sheishes Asar, between the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War. And he, and he would go to army bases and go to kibbutzim, uh, giving lectures to soldiers, to members uh, of the kibbutz. After the Six-Day War, and he tried to capitalize on that environment to bring people closer to to uh, Jewish life. Another person who starts at that point is Rabbi Yitzchak David Grossman in the 1960s in Migdal HaEmek. He's still going strong, unbelievably. Migdal Or eventually becomes his organization's Rabbi Nachman Bowman, who was in America, comes also to that area, to the area of Migdal HaEmek. He starts Nachaliel for, specifically for American Balchuva families, which didn't work out. One of the biggest heroes of the Israel Balchuva movement who's also still around, and he's, you know, he's a historical figure because he started so long ago, is Rabbi Ruvain Elbaz. He begins in the late 1960s, the early 1970s, eventually the Arachayim Institution. He was originally, he starts out as the rabbi of the Beis Yisrael neighborhood where the Mir Yeshiva is, and he was a dying on a Bezdin. He had good positions in the mainstream Jewish community. And what did he do? 
Instead, he goes to pool halls at night to bring the youth back to Yiddishkeit. He used to travel around the country. He would lecture. He would go to places. He was so active in reaching out, and eventually he built this Kirov empire, and, uh, and he definitely had played a major role in, in Kirov in the state of Israel. And then what you have is the American Balei Tshuva who start to arrive in Israel in the 1970s, and the first Baal Tshuva yeshivas and institutions in Israel for Americans. That's a, a combination. Until now we talked about in America and in Israel. And here we have um, American institutions in Israel. You have Ar Sameach with Reb Schiller and Remendel Weinbach. You had, of course, Eisha Torah with Reb Weinberg, Reb Baruch Horowitz and Dvar Yerushalayim, Diaspora Yeshiva and Reb Mordechai Goldstein. You had Mayor Schuster at the Kaisel, and then Jeff Seidel was still around. Um, and all these institutions, and each one of these is a whole story, which, uh, of course, we'll, we'll have to get to. Um, you have Uri Zohar, who becomes a prominent Kirov personality in Israel, who himself was a Balchuva. And then you had Chabad arriving in Israel. The Rebbe starts sending Shluchim to Israel in the 1970s. And then you have Israeli Kirov organizations, like Arachim, which is founded in 1979. Um, so, the, the, uh, the, in Israel, the institutional stage does start a bit later than in the United States. Um, and then, and, and then of course, we have to get to is uh, another facet of Kirov is worth examining, uh, also at a later stage in this series, is Kirov, the development of Kirov and organizations active in Kirov in the Soviet Union, which is a fascinating story. And then there's the worldwide Kirov, such as Chabad houses and other similar uh, uh, organization. So there's a lot of history to talk about. That's uh, enough for this time. I just want to get to a few questions to analyze from the For the Record trivia quiz. The one we were up to when we left off last time was this question. Rav Aaron Cutler, Rav Yaakov Yitzchak Ruderman, and Rav Yecheskel Sarna, all married granddaughters of this leading Musser figure. A. Rav Yisrael Salanter. B. Rav Shraga Feivel Frank. C. The Altar of Slabatka. D. Rav Zalman Meltzer. And um, so, Rabbi Kotler, Yaakov Yitzhak and Rabbi Sarna, who are all students of the Slabatki Yeshiva, more or less there at the same time, give or take a couple of years. And um, they did not marry granddaughters of Yisrael Salanter, who was the founder of the Muslim movement. They all were students of the altar of Slabatka, so that was the trick part of the questions. Um, Rabbi Zal Meltzer was not a leading Musser figure. So that was another trick, because some of them were related to Rebissa Zalman Meltzer, but uh, they were not, uh, you know, Aaron Cutler was his son-in-law. Um, and uh, so that was a, a, another one. And the least famous one on, of the choices was the right answer, Reb Shraga Feivel Frank, who was a layman, a a Balabas, wealthy, who was a student of Rebissa Salanter and a leading Musser figure in the Kovna suburb of Alaksut. And all... F- Three of those personalities married his granddaughters. Which one of these Torah giants studied under the Avnei Nezer? A. The Kli Chemda, Reb Meir Don Plotsky, Polish Hasidic Torah leader. B. Reb Lezer Yehuda Finkel, a Lithuanian Rosh Hashiva. C. Reb Tzvi Aryeh Frommer, the Kajlikovarov and Rosh Hashiva of Yeshivas Chachmei Lublin. D. All of the above. Now, being at the Avnei Nezer, Ram Barenstein, who was the Sachachava Rebbe, son-in-law of the Kutzker, was a Polish Hasidic Rebbe. So we would assume that it can't be 
that uh, it's all of the above, because all of the above would include Rebbe Eliezer Yehuda Finkel, or Blazer Yudel. And why would a Litvak study under a Hasidic Torah scholar in, in, in Poland? And the answer is all of the above. The Kajl Kover Rav, Rebbe learned under the Avni Nezer, the Kli Chemder of Meridan Plotsky learned under the Avni Nezer, which that makes sense. The Kajl Kover Rav himself was a Sachachavar Chassid, but Rebbe Yudel also did. Rebbe Yudel studied everywhere. He went to many yeshivas, and it's interesting. He went to Tells, and he went to his father Slobodka, of course, and he was in he was by Rebbe Baron Kamenitz, and he studied with Rebbe Chaim Brisker and Brisk, and he was everywhere. He was in many many yeshivas. In one of the places that he was for a short time, just for a couple of months, was his, he went to uh, to check out what's going on in Poland, what's going on by the Hasidic uh, Torah world. And he was went there. And, so, and I, I don't know what the exact circumstances were, why he chose to do so, or did his father command him to do so. But in the late 1890s, he spent several months by the Avni Nehazer studying there. It didn't work out. He didn't connect to the Derech Halimut. He didn't like the style. So he left pretty quickly. But he definitely was there. Um, next question. As part of its massive expansion efforts in the 1950s, Yeshiva Torah Vadas opened branches in these three locations. A. Queens, Los Angeles, Flatbush. B. Borough Park, Budapest, Lawrence. C. Muncie, Farakaway, Baltimore. D. Los Angeles, Muncie, and the Bronx. And the... the uh, What's interesting is that they had these expansion uh, expansion plans, and the correct answer is A: Queens, Los Angeles, and Flatbush, and that's just uh, it's just uh, you know indicative of what uh, Tervidas was was trying to accomplish in those days to try to build even in places like L.A. Um, and um, and uh, and uh, and they were successful. Obviously, Budapest was a joke, but uh, they didn't they didn't do it in those other places. Um, how many years did Rav Meir Shapiro lead Yeshivas Chachme Lublin for? A. Two to four years. B. Five to eight years. C. Nine to twelve years. D. Thirteen to sixteen years. And it's a fascinating thing. It's tragic also because Yeshivas Chachme Lublin only existed nine years before the war. And uh, so D is not an option altogether. And even C um, and B were not are incorrect because unfortunately Mary Shapiro passed away at a very young age. And it's, uh, it's amazing because we assume his influence was so great and so long and so much. So Mary Shapiro probably was Rashiva for such a long time. But in fact, he was only Rashiva there for three years until his unfortunate young passing. So the correct answer is A, he was there for only three years. He was the Rashiva of Chachmei Lublin. Most of those who we know who were survivors of Chachmei Lublin were not students of Rameir Shapiro. They were students of the Kajal Kavarov, Ratsi Arya Fromer, because he was the Rashiva there afterwards for six years. The overwhelming majority of Hungary's religious Jews were A, followers of Reb Shail of Karastir, B, followers of the Chassam Seifer, C, wealthy, D, Hungarian patriots. If there's any one question that was more of a joke than a real question in honor and in the spirit of Purim, it was this one. Unfortunately, I got a lot of flack because people apparently took it way too seriously. Um, and the correct answer is D, Hungarian patriots, because everyone, even Hasidic Jews, was very patriotic. Uh, almost nationalistic in a certain way, and ironic because Hungarian nationalists were anti-Semitic, um, very supportive of their country. Uh, not all of them were followers of the Chassam Seifer, contrary to revisionist history. 
definitely a very small minority were followers of Rav Shaila of Karastir, contrary to revisionist history, uh, where everyone seems to be a follower of Rav Shaila. And uh, wealthy also was a joke because um, there were a lot of wealthy Jews in places like Budapest, but definitely does not necessarily mean that every Hungarian Jew was wealthy. The 18 productive years that Rebelezer Silver spent as chief rabbi of this city were dwarfed by the half-century that his son, Rabbi David Silver, would later spend there. A. Cincinnati, B. Springfield, C. Harrisburg, D. Columbus, the correct answer being Harrisburg, which was where Rebelezer Silver was before he was the rabbi in Cincinnati. Which one of these Hasidic rebbes never visited Eretz Yisrael? A, the Mincha Salazar, B, the Rebbe Rayats of Chabad, C, the Sfas Emes, D, Reb Nachman or Breslov. The Mincha Salazar came on a famous, I think, 10-day visit or a bit longer. I don't remember exactly how many days. In 1930, he saw the Saba Kadisha, Rebbe Elefandri. Um, he, Rebbe, Rebbe Rayats of Chabad, of course, made a very important visit to Eretz Yisrael uh, after his release from uh, the Soviet Union. And the, uh, the Reb Nachman of Breslov, Early on, and they're talking about when it was not so common to visit Eretz Yisrael, came. Uh, he was in he was in the Galil. He was in Akko. He met Rabbi Avram Kalisker. It was in 1799, if I'm not mistaken, or around that time. It was around the time of Napoleon's invasion uh, um, in Akko. And um, the correct answer is the Svasemes, who never visited Eretz Yisrael. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, lectures, sponsorships, and you could subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on um, podcast, uh, on Podbean, excuse me, or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.